0: Children are dismissed, uh, junior and senior high, go ahead and stay in here if you would please. I want to thank everybody for being here this morning, thank you so much, appreciate you being here in house with us and thank you online for whoever's out there viewing, I really appreciate that, Uh, welcome to uh, First Baptist Church New Plymouth. As you can see I look a little different than Phil, so you just have to put up with me today. But uh, hopefully we can uh, glean something out of God's word. Has anybody here ever uh, told a white lie? Maybe, uh, maybe how big that fish was? Right? Uh, or how about uh, taking any um, pens or supplies from work? Okay, uh... Or uh, who here has withheld information from someone just to get them to continue to believe what you want them to believe? It's probably why I'm in sales. How many of you, at some point in your life, have had had uh, road rage and uh, flipped the bird, or maybe dropped the f-bomb or some other slip of the tongue? Uh, how about this one? Uh, one time, I was a kid. I had a uh, had a free pass to the. To the rodeo here in town one summer, and uh, I got uh, what I thought was this great idea: how to get uh, me and my buddy into the rodeo for free because we didn't have a whole lot of money, and so we were trying to take advantage of an opportunity. So I walked up to the entrance and uh, uh, redeemed my pass. They, you know, gave me a stamp on my hand, and while the stamp was still real wet, I uh, rushed out to where my buddy was. And grabbed his hand, and, and I stamped my wet stamp on his stamp, or on his hand, and so we both walked in for free. Pretty pretty clever, right? Or how about this? There was another time um, when I was attending uh, the middle school. I worked in the lunchroom, and I served lunch, and because I got I served lunch, I um, I got free muffins at nutrition break. So nutrition break was a little break in between the morning classes to kind of help rejuvenate. Well. The, kind of a gray area on what I was allowed to do with these muffins. Like, do I eat them, or do I sell them half-price to my buddies, or do I just give them free so they can eat free like me? Right? Let's uh, let's get a little more serious here, though. How many of us have fudged on our taxes? Anyone do that? Try and claim an extra write-off or two just so that you don't have to pay more back to the government? They're not gonna They're not gonna spend it right anyways, right? Or or how about this? How many of you men? How many of you men have yelled at your wife in public because you think she's nagging or irritating or she won't listen? How many of you have done that? Or how many of you men instead yell at her in private so that no one knows? Right? How many of you uh, men have allowed yourself to engage visually into scantily dressed women on TV or in person? Maybe tell yourself that it's okay because that's how they market to us. They want us to look. They want us to see those things, right? And justify it? Or worse, you don't even recognize that you do it? How many of you women act out of spite because you feel your needs are not met? Or you're mad at your husband? Some of you women might even compromise your beliefs to get in on the good gossip. Or, or tell yourself that you're gossiping because you care, right? You, you have a soft spot for this person. I've done about all of those that I listed, except maybe act out of spite to my husband. Because <laughs> I don't have a husband, but to my wife for sure. Unfortunately, we don't have to look very far to find Christians who compromise to fit into the patterns of the world. Most of us in this room, we've compromised in ways that prevent us from glorifying the kingdom of God. How you develop your moral and ethical compass can directly impact how effective you are for the kingdom of God. If you all recall the last time that we met, Uh, We discussed uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, and in that chapter, Peter gives us seven areas to grow in that allow us to let our light shine for the kingdom of God. I'll recap real quick. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure... They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, today we're going to look at one of those seven attributes that allow us to be effective in God's kingdom. That's going to be virtue, okay? We will explore virtue in the New Testament. However, we're going to do it by way of the Old Testament, specifically in Ruth. But first, let's recap the New Testament usage of virtue. In the most basic sense, like we discussed last time I was with you guys, virtue is conforming of one's life and conduct to moral and ethical principles, being a good person, meaning our our actions and what we do conform or adhere to a moral and ethical standard, like having a moral compass, right? Okay? Or living by the book, the question is, though, what book are you living by? A real good book uh, to read if you're um, if you're wanting to take a nap. Dictionary of New Testament Theology. Okay. i am uh, I'm gonna open it here. A, a quick word study, the word virtue and its usage in the Bible uncovered some very interesting insight. The Greek word used here is arete, and according to the New the dictionary of New Testament theology, our ete, was not only used in the New Testament, but also in a secular context. And so I'm going to read a little bit here. Please don't fall asleep. It can get kind of boring for some of us. If I can get my book right here. Okay, the connection between individual words for virtue in the New Testament and corresponding lists in non-Christian Greek literature is indisputable. Thus, for example, Paul speaks quite unreservedly about what is good or whatever is just or whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, as the goal which Christians ought to strive to attain. The earliest church was, this, was thus fully aware of good qualities in the heathen and brought forward conscience and virtue into its Christian proclamation. Meaning, you know, according to this book, we can periodically see qualities of goodness or sound moral and ethical Compasses in both Christians and non Christians, right? Okay, so both, both sides can be good people at times. On the other hand, we should not overlook the differences between Stoic and Christian catalogs of virtue or between Greek and New Testament concepts of virtue. The Platonic schemes of the four cardinal virtues does not appear in the New Testament catalog. Instead, all the virtues, though individually drawn in part from Greek lists, are brought under the main concepts of love or of faith and are controlled by these. Nor does the New Testament know the Aristotelian distinction between practical and theoretical virtues. It stresses rather the totality of our actions both as practical acts and expressions of obedience. Meaning the secular way Plato and Aristotle viewed virtue was completely driven by our own ability to do good or conditioned by the soul. Plato is quoted here. He who attains a true insight into the good will also do it. This is the idea that you can learn to do good things. Meaning, like we said, control or possess a moral compass. And unfortunately, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Right? But this New Testament virtue, or arete, is derived out of our love or out of our faith. It's driven on the tracks of love and faith, as seen in Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and specifically here in 2 Peter chapter 1. This moral excellence that we're talking about today, is, it's a godly virtue. A virtue driven by the divine nature of God, not driven by what our flesh or soul determines is what's good. Finally, and this is of great importance, it must be said that the Stoic's view of himself as autonomous in his virtues is one completely foreign to the New Testament. Here the virtues are the fruit of the Spirit, subservient to mutual love and the glorification of God. Hence, the New Testament virtues are not derived from the harmony of the soul nor from the quality of the man, but are seen as gracious gifts, charisma, of the divine spirit. They are the actions and the marks of God's new creation. You see, what what we're talking about here today, it's a, it's a virtue driven by the divine nature of God. Love and faith, not of, of high moral character, um, driven by how much I know and my own judgment or social pressures to conform. We see this concept confirmed a couple of verses earlier in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. I mean, I'll, I'll recap here. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. You see, amen, we've been given a gift from God. We've been blessed with a new set of standards to live by, a new, a new playbook, if you will. What was once seen as, as morally and ethically right in the world may not be morally, morally and ethically right in God's kingdom. More specifically, how we're able to display this said virtue It's not on my works and what I've done. It's on the work of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That work that he did. We're just all the conduits to share it with the world. Keep in mind that uh, this goodness that we're talking about isn't, it's not just a one-off good deed, which although those are really good, that's that's not what this is. This is a continual growth of conforming my life to the likeness of God's character. The way we're able to share this gift of goodness with the world is proclaiming it through, through our love and faith in Jesus Christ our Savior, through our actions. Our effectiveness, effectiveness to shine God's light is more often accomplished through compassion, empathy, generosity, encouragement, support, grace, and love. Be the example. Nobody nobody cares what we know until they know that we care. I believe a great example of this virtue we're talking about today is seen in Ruth chapters 2 and 3. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Ruth. As you do that, um, I'm going to ask you guys to get a highlighter and a pen out. You're going to mark up your Bible. And if that offends you, please just don't don't do it and follow along. But if you have a highlighter and pen, get that handy. And as you're turning to Ruth, chapter 2 and 3, I'm going to kind of try to set the scene a little bit, if I may. So Judges 17, 6 states that in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And the book of Ruth opens, verse 1. Within those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So at this time, the nation of Israel chose for themselves what they thought was morally and ethically right. And much of what is determined as good or bad or right or wrong, it was, it was largely left up to the people and not governed through God or governed by God through a judge or earthly king. I feel like this is important to get and understand because these behaviors that we're going to see here in Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, they appear to be abnormal to the culture in which they live in. Our lives, not much different. We all battle the temptation to conform to the patterns of this world or skew our moral compass. When we compromise our relationship with God, we we lose each other, the body of Christ, and we compromise our ability to keep our moral compass locked in, thus blurring the lines of right or wrong, good or bad, moral or immoral. Unfortunately, when that happens... We end up covering our light up of shining God's glory to others. So I'm going to try to sum up uh, Ruth chapter 1 just kind of real quick. So we got a man from the tribe of Ephraim in Bethlehem named Elimelech. Now Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons hightail it out of Bethlehem and head east to Moab to avoid the famine that's going on in Bethlehem. Now, if you recall, the Moabites and Israelites—they're not necessarily friends—but somehow, Elimelech and his family managed to assimilate life there in the Moab. Now, after a while, Elimelech dies, and his two sons marry some gals from Moab. Okay, Orpah and Ruth live there for about ten years, and then—and the two boys die. Okay, and so uh, leaving Naomi without her two sons or her husband, so now it's just Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. Okay, then Naomi gets wind from—gets wind that God had come to the aid of his people back in, in Bethlehem. So Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth pack up, and they begin to head back to Bethlehem. Well, on the way there, Naomi stops and urges Orpah and Ruth to return to their homeland. And after some banter back and forth, you get um, Orpah returns home, but Ruth, she insists on living the rest of her days with Naomi. Now, now, mind you, if you would, please, um, Ruth, Ruth is about to, she's about to enter a foreign land as a woman, a Moabite, a Gentile, a pagan, poverty-stricken and widowed at a time when women had next to no rights. She was a potential enemy of Israel, a non-Jew without money and no husband to provide for her. R- Ruth is a, she's either really dumb or she has the fear of God in her, Right? So we're going to go ahead and uh, read through chapter 2, okay? And if you would, kind of follow along. I'm going to have you guys highlight a few things. So have your pen and highlighters ready. So, Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing. If you would, go ahead and highlight a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Naomi. Let me go to the fields and pick up, after the, pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. If you would, go ahead and highlight, greeted the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. And go ahead and highlight that little phrase as well. Boaz asked the overseer overseer of his harvester, who does that young woman belong to? If you would highlight that piece, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is a Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. If you guys would, go ahead and uh, bracket around verse 8 and 9, just that whole section there. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her, head, her face to the ground. She asked him, "Why have I found so, such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner?" If you would, go ahead and bracket verse 11 and 12. After you do that, get the highlighter ready. So verse 11, Boaz replied, "I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since your death, since the death of your husband." And go ahead and highlight from this point to the end of verse 12. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and come to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May, the, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Verse 13. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz uh, said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all that she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Highlight, let her gather, don't reprimand her and then highlight all of 16. Even pull out some stocks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up, and don't rebuke her. So then Ruth's all excited. She uh, finishes out the day, goes home. Now she shares with uh, Naomi what's taking place and what's happening. And Naomi's just super excited, and so is Ruth, and they're just having a ball. And so they feel real secure now. So then days go by, and they kind of continue that through most, if not all, of the harvest season. And it kind of pulls us into uh, verse or excuse me, chapter 3. Now, Naomi kind of has this plan to attempt to get um, her and Ruth and the property redeemed by their guardian redeemer. And so Ruth says, hey, basically get you dolled up and we'll have you sit at the feet of uh, Boaz and kind of see what happens. And so we're going to pick up in uh, verse 10. Okay, so Boaz, he's like wakes up from, from sleep and he's got Ruth at his feet here. Okay, and if you would, go ahead and bracket all of verse... From 10 through 13. And then get your highlighter ready. The Lord bless you, my daughter. Go ahead and highlight that. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Highlight that phrase. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you as you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Highlight that sentence. All the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Verse 12 here. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Highlight that last phrase. There is another who is more closely related than I. And to finish off here, verse 13. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, assuredly as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Everything that you highlighted or bracketed, it's an action of virtue done out of love or faith or a combination of both. A man of standing is an implied action. It's implying that Boaz... It that Boaz is a man of high character within the community and a man of God. One of the first actions we see that Boaz do is he what? He, he greets his harvesters, right? And he blesses them. How many of you husbands out here come home from work and the first thing you do is greet your wife and kiddos with love and affection? Maybe uh, kiss your wife and, and ask her how her day was. Engage with the kiddos and let them tell you about their day? Or at most of you like me. Try to walk through the door without being seen. You know, hide away and decompress and take a load off without being bothered by anybody? You know, because I, I I have needs too, right? But you see, Boaz, he he shows that he cares by engaging with his, his friends and family in a in a manner that that registers with them they they can see and sense and feel that they believe that he cares about them because he puts their needs above his own or, or how about this how about in verse 8 boaz he could have easily kicked root to the curb and said, hey there's not enough here go to the next field right right go go, go somewhere else that, that might have been socially acceptable there because everybody kind of did whatever they wanted or what they thought was right but no, no. Instead, Boaz showed root generosity and support, driven by his love and faith in God. You and Naomi need food for the day? Have at it. Come get as much as you want. Oh, and come back the next day, and the next day after that, and keep coming back. He basically introduces himself and encourages her to stay and harvest in his field. He hires her on site with benefits. Oh, and you're thirsty? You're tired? Go take a break, as much breaks as you want. The men have already filled up the water jars for you. No worries. Oh, and don't don't be bothered by the fact that uh, you're a woman in a foreign land. I told the men not to touch you. Right? Now, now, rightfully so. Ruth is kind of like looking at him cross-eyed. Like she starts questioning his motives. Like, what's going on here? What what in the world's happening? I, I'm just trying to glean a little barley to survive. Right? She's probably getting a little suspicious. I I, I probably would, to be honest. Why is this guy, what is this guy up to, and why is, why is he so different? Why is this not what I've experienced in Moab? This is probably the same way my wife would feel if I came home every day for a straight week. Hey, babe, just just, just sit down, put your feet up, let me, let me rub them down, get you a hot bubble bath, babe. Uh, you want me to take care of the kids? Yeah, uh, dinner's on me, babe, I got it, right? If I kept doing that every day for a week, she's going to be like, what are you doing? Right? (laughs) Amen. So Boaz responds to Ruth's concerns by uh, commending her in verse 11. He says, uh, How you left your father and mother and your homeland and come to live with a people you did not know before. Right? So Boaz recognizes the difficulty and struggle of the path Ruth has taken. He's showering her with compassion, empathy, understanding, love, agape love. Boaz can see her hurt. He can see her pain. He can see her struggle. But he can also see her kindness, her compassion, her goodness, her love, her faith. This this discernment, it's enabled only through the divine nature of God given to Boaz. It seems seems clear to me that... uh, boaz can see the degree of faith ruth had to have in order to uproot and move to a place where you are an absolute minority remember that in chapter one ruth tells naomi your people are my people your god is my god and then in verse 12 of chapter two the massive blessings boaz gives back to ruth for her virtue May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Think about it. It would be like, it'd be like one of us you know, with our mother-in-law moving to Russia, China, or even North Korea, where, where we have little to no rights. We know literally no one. We're broken looking for work without a social or government ID number or really any way to get hired. And by chance or divine nature or divine intervention, we happen to run into a potential step-relative second cousin who not only is wealthy and has power, but he gives us a job and encourages us on our fortitude and desire to live in a manner of high character. I mean, get real, right? How much more does Boaz need to do for us to see that his virtue, it's not of his own strength in doing? But instead, it's, it's, a, it's a byproduct of his relationship with God. Right? And then to top it all off, in chapter 3, when Boaz is asked to take Ruth in marriage and be her guardian redeemer, I feel he shows exceptional moral excellence. Boaz had an opportunity to marry Ruth, but instead, one, he blesses her. Two, he compliments her. And three, he shows virtue by standing firm in the word of God. He could have easily taken her in marriage. Would anyone really have known or cared or thought it? He was one of the guys in line. I mean, I, I guess you can get audited for tax fraud, right? I mean, but if it's just little here and little there, no biggie, right? I mean, what's his name down the road did and got away with it? Or, or I logged in just one time. I can erase my browser history. What they don't know, it won't hurt them, right? Or I only sent them one picture, and my, my face wasn't in it. It was just my body. Or, or that person, they, they needed to hear me tell them that. They're so full of themselves, they needed to know that. We all have struggles, and I'm definitely no different. In fact, I'm probably worse in most areas but in a pivotal moment, a, a moment that meant life or death, spiritual life or death, when temptation was knocking at the door, Boaz did what was right. His moral compass was locked in, locked into a godly virtue. And if you think about it, they're living in a time when morality is in decline and a, a kind, loving, young, hardworking, noble, loyal, God-loving and probably pretty good-looking woman is laying at his feet saying, hey, you can have me if you want me. I'm right here. No. Boaz replies, although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who is more closely related than I. You see, Boaz not only valued Ruth and her well-being, he valued others in his community, and more importantly, he values the kingdom of God above himself. The idea of a um, of a good moral compass it's, it's it's subjective for sure. Kind of like a good steakhouse or where to find a good meal. Probably like most of us in this room, I really believe that I'm a good person with good intentions. And that very well may be the case with all of us in this room. But like I said before, the moral excellence that we now live by, now that we are saved by Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross is not the same moral compass that is used by the world. Let me encourage you to take a deep look at how you've built your moral excellence and ask yourself, am I living by my standards? Or standards worthy of hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because what we do and how we act, I feel is a direct reflection of our relationship with God. What are you willing to sacrifice or give up to shine the light of God? Let's pray. Lord Father God, thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of that kingdom, Father God. Thank you for allowing us to have stake and and a place within your kingdom, a job to do, uh, a way to move that allows us to be redeemed by your son, Father God. Thank you for allowing your son to come and die on the cross For our sins because you know, Lord, Father God, we struggle day in and day out. But Lord, I ask that you bring the Holy Spirit upon us. Let us be nudged and sensitive sensitive to his nudging. So that when we're crossed with a moment of life or death spiritually, Lord, Father God, we lean into you. We lean into your Holy Spirit and let you control and guide us, Father God. I ask that you continue to allow this process to happen in each and every one of us. Allow you, ask you to allow us to, to try to fully understand you and, and be present in this next week, Father God. I thank you for your son. We love you and we thank you in your son's name. Amen.